Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What's up, guys? This is Rob Serra. Welcome to episode five of the Firefighters Podcast. Joining me this week will be Jim Bernica from the Dayton, Ohio Fire Department. He'll bring us more on the fight to remove cancer-causing PFAS chemicals from firefighters' bunker gear. And he'll touch a little bit on his own bout with cancer. America's favorite, and if I may say so, the cutest, cooking correspondent, my daughter Frankie, will bring us another delicious firehouse feast. For today's roll call, I'm going to bring it back to firefighter Michael Camerata, who was the focus of episode two of the show. October 5th would have been his 43rd birthday. So here's to Mike and all those birthdays missed. So this is a rather long episode, so I'm just going to cut right to it. Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Bernica. My guest this week is Jim Bernica from Dayton, Ohio. He's a firefighter and... Uh, you learned a little bit about Diane and what she's been fighting for last week. And uh, Jim's just going to give us a little bit more on that and uh, tell us uh, his story. So welcome, Jim. Thanks for having me, Rob. I appreciate yeah, no, it. No problem. It's so, only fair. I had you last year on my show. Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, when I was in quarantine in my basement. That was fun. <laughs> Thankfully, I'm now in my bedroom closet, but whatever. <laughs> nice. Now uh, I'm in my basement. Oh, all right. So we switched. Um, so just tell everybody how you got started. What, what, when did you become a firefighter and why did you want to be one in the first place? Sure. You know, I actually started Dayton in 2001. Uh, I got involved with the department earlier on than that. Uh, my dad played softball with some Dayton guys that he went to high school with. And I ended up doing ride alongs when I was a teenager and just kind of fell in love with it. You know, the, the camaraderie and uh, the fun, the adventure, the uh, every day is different. Uh, and, and just uh, really more than anything, I think hanging out with the guys and just how like you're getting paid to do this stuff. This, this is great. And uh, first chance I got, took the test and got lucky, you know, got on, had to work my butt off after that, to uh, you know, stay on, but, uh, that's uh, almost 21 years now. Yeah. How, how competitive is the test there? How many, how many guys are on the department? <laughs> it's not, well, it's not fair to compare it to your test, but, <laughs> you know, um, 1500 people, I think took that, that test that I got on. And I think we maybe hired 55, I think off of that. Oh, well that, that's, that's probably, you know, comparatively, it's probably about the same, you know? Wow. Yeah. And how big is the department? We are around 325. Okay. 12 stations, really 11 because they've been browning one out for almost a year now. But um, yeah, 325s. We have uh, 
eight engines, four trucks, seven medics. Um, is really what it kind of our how our department is uh, staffed. Right. And uh, do you remember your first job? What was what was your introduction to the the real fire department? <laughs> Just well, I should say that I, I did work part time at a couple of departments before I went full time. So I had I had a single fire uh, under my belt uh, during that year and a half that I was doing the part time stuff. So, but my first so I want to compare that first fire in which it was maybe ten people on the scene and. I mean, luckily it went out, but it was still kind of crazy when, when you work, you know, where I was at in Dayton, especially back then, cause we had more apparatus. I mean, they, they cut us a lot in the early two thousands, like right after I got on, I, so I, I was there for the glory days where we had tons of manpower, tons of apparatus to where compared to where we are now, which is really understaffed. But, you know, you're talking about 20 guys on the scene, basically all at the same time, know their job and just nail it. And, uh, it was just adrenaline. I mean, just crazy because just to see how the machine truly worked after you train, you train, you train and train, but then there you are doing it live. And, you know, first one in last one out, that's, that's how it is when you're a cub here where it probably is pretty much everywhere. Yeah. Um, so here's a little different because there's, uh, there's a lot more than just the guys you're working with eyeballs on you at all times. You know, there's usually streets full of people and, and uh, you know, there's probably five or six chiefs alone uh, at a first or second alarm, as opposed to uh, just 20 people all together. So it's, it's a little bit different. Um, but I'd say I probably would, would enjoy it more if it was, uh, you know, less people around and less, uh, less people you're working with. Right. I guess it's easier to, to, uh, really know what's going on and where everybody is when, when you know exactly who's there. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And that, that first station too, was, I had, uh, it was a little bit of everything. So I had engine, I had a truck, I had a medic, I had ambulances and I rode all that stuff. So, I mean, I was able to experience kind of a little bit of everything really early and that's, on. And that's good. Like, you know, we don't have that in New York, but, I feel like then you know exactly what the other person's supposed to be doing and you know how what you're doing either helps them or doesn't, right? Um I always I always thought that that we should have been more yeah, I mean they try to do it, but they have like this rotation thing now where they send truck guys to engines and you know, they they did it back in the late nineties too, which is good. But you don't go ride on ambulances or work with medics or, you know, any of that stuff. So you you miss out on that whole side. So I, don't know I think that would solve it. some problems. No, I but I think <laughs> I think uh, it might it might help with with relations between the two departments. Uh, well, that's it's the same department, but two agencies. That's valid, especially understanding you know? where they're coming from. Yes, right, right. All right. So you just you're, you're I mean you're still battling cancer, right? I mean you never you're not five years free of it. So walk everybody through that process you know how'd you find out and uh how was your sure. department about it sure no I'll, i can take you through that journey um it all started last april um i was sitting across the dinner table for my wife and we're eating dinner and she just kind of gives me that funny look and just says your right side of your neck is larger than your left and you know 
And I just, of course, I responded with, uh, you're crazy. She's <laughs> like, no, I'm serious. Go look. And I, I went in a mirror and all I saw was some fat turkey neck. I, you know, nothing there, nothing odd. And uh, she's like, I'm serious. It's, it's, it's bigger. And, and she, you know, she's a nurse. She's very observant. And I, and I just said, okay, that's fine. I'll, I'll make an appointment. I'll get checked out. And, and I think that really honestly comes from talking to other firefighters who have been given warnings or people have told things to them like, Hey, you know, something's up with that. And they've been dismissive. And because of that, you know, they had, they caught their cancer, but they caught it in a later stage. And so I was more, I think, willing to go, okay, I'll get it checked out just really because that stuff was in the back of my head. So, you know, this is right when COVID was hot and crazy last year, early spring. And so it wasn't even a real appointment. It was a virtual appointment. And, but needless to say, they, they scheduled me for an ultrasound. I went and got, and did that. And they did, they found an, a nodule on my thyroid, but they said at the time, Hey, it's pretty small. We're not too worried about it. Why don't you come back in a year or two and we'll double check it. And so I didn't wait two years. When that year was up, I went back and sure as shit had grown. And uh, they scheduled a biopsy the very next day. And so my wife and I went and did that. And uh, the, the cool thing is, and I, I didn't expect this, when they did the biopsy, the doctor just went in a different room and uh, put the stuff under some slides. And like within five minutes, he's walking in the room with my results, which so the whole having to wait a week for a typical biopsy that wasn't there. I had to wait five minutes. So that was, that was a good thing. Yeah. The bad thing was he came back with a sheet of paper, you know, and just said, Hey, it said, I still have it upstairs. Papillary thyroid carcinoma. It's the most common cancer. We'll need surgery. So that's how he broke it to me. Like, yeah, yeah, you got cancer. And this, and you're going to have to have surgery, but it's, so at least aggressive. So you have that going for you. So, uh, man, um, and I think from there it was, uh, it's weird, Rob, because like, I, I know this, this game so much at this point, I've been involved with firefighter cancer stuff for like 15 years. Yeah. And it didn't matter, man. Like I was just jello, like worthless just a, a whiny just you know inconsolable just person like i i left from the doctor's appointment i went home and my wife had to go and pick up my kids from my parents house and she i had her tell my mother um i couldn't even say those words man it's screwed with me and it it even it took weeks, I think, to tell certain people, not weeks, but like when I did, when it was time to tell them, because I knew it was going to hurt them, which was going to hurt me. Like, I just couldn't even say the words. It was weird. And I just was just, I, I wasn't prepared. Like I knew so much, but yet I knew so little when it came to actually being diagnosed and what you go through. Sure. And, and I'd imagine that you, you're so close to it. You've studied it so much that you probably became a little bit numb to it, you know, on a personal level, because you, you, you've read all the, all the reports, all the stories, and 
especially thyroid cancer, right? That's one of the highest, um, not just nationally, but for firefighters. I know in the 9-11 uh, program, I think first responders are like 290%, have a 290% greater chance of getting thyroid cancer than the general population. Um, you know, I have, I have the nodules too, but fortunately my slide reads so far. Um, <laughs> the doctor came back with some jokes and uh, not, not a notepad. So I've been lucky, but, uh, but I'd imagine that that probably had to play a role, right? You, you, and also you knew what all those other guys, you know, had to deal with afterwards and possibly losing your job. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, um, I mean, when you think about it, like, uh, so I didn't have any signs or symptoms, you know, I mean, I guess my wife said I had a little bit larger neck on, on, you know, one side, but I felt fine. Um, and I think it, and it's still, it scared me then. It scares me now because that stuff was in me and it was, it was on a move. You know, I, I ended up finding out that it was in an lymph node. So right. it was on a move too. So it mentally, you're like, yeah, no idea that I was there. Like what else is going on inside this body that shouldn't be there. So that whole, you know, I really started thinking about that. Um, what else is going on? And, and I'm pretty good about, you know, I preach all the time about your, your, your wellness exams, your skin exams, and just being on top of that. And, and I am, but still like, I've got lucky with this one, plain and simple. You know, I had an observant wife and I got lucky and I listened. That was probably the best thing I did is I actually listened. Right. And, yes. and you're lucky that, I mean, in our, with our career, you can go months without sitting across from your wife at a dinner table. Right. I mean, I, I used to, I remember not seeing my wife for, you know, for that type of moment for months, sometimes it felt like even years that we had a chance to sit and, and relax and eat together. So you got lucky that that moment even happened. Right. You know, if you're working a bunch of nights in a row, she's a nurse, you know. Absolutely. For sure. So, um, and it, it, with this whole cancer thing, again, knowing what I've known and being so involved throughout, I mean, the U.S., Canada, I mean, all this stuff. And knowing all the stuff I did early on in my career, knowing how things were, how the mentality was. And you know how the stuff, you know, the badge of honor, the dirty gear, the, yeah, you know, the breathing the stuff in. I, I knew that was, I, I knew I was a ticking time bomb. It wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when and you know i caught this one but i i know this stuff is still looming sure it makes you it makes you it makes you think things differently just puts everything in perspective it's it forces you to do that yeah i mean you agree i'm sure yeah uh you know, I, I don't, I, I try not to live with regrets, but obviously, you know, it's hard not to uh, think of, of all the things that got me where I am right now. You know, it's hard not to, you know, second guess yourself and, and the decisions you made, but you no, know, you can't live that way. Right. You can't go back and say, you know, maybe I should choose a different career or, or not wear my gear. Uh, you know, like for me, it'd be like, if I was just one foot to the left, uh, you know, I wouldn't have had a roof fall on my head, you know, like it just, it's easy to get caught up in that, but that, that's that not going to help. Sailed. Right. Yeah. It's not going to get that shit out of your body. Right. Um, so 
if anything, the negativity would only expedite whatever's going on. That's how I look at it. So I think you're left with really doing what you and I are doing right now this minute mm-hmm. is trying to be an advocate and to talk about, make people aware to talk about prevention, just to get the word out to hope with, with the hope, the whole intention that maybe we spare somebody else from having to deal with the same shit we have to deal with. Right. But, but I feel like, I don't know if you feel like this, I feel a bit like Sisyphus, you know, trying to push the rock up the hill. You know, you've been in this, in this for years, studying all this and, and, you know, the PFAS stuff and all the stuff with the gear. And you, even you weren't prepared for that diagnosis, even though you, you probably knew deep down that it was a huge possibility. Um, so for the other, for the other people out there who may not even be aware that it's a thing, you know, like, I just feel like to, to make, to force them to, to see what's happening when, when they don't get to experience it personally is a very difficult thing with, with the nine 11 stuff. It was very difficult early on to get everyone on board. You know, I remember going to press conferences, even as late as 2014, 2015, and it'd be, you know, a fire department of 12,000 people and it'd be five or six people there. Like, how is that possible? You know that more than six people are sick. You know that it's happening all across the board. So why why aren't the healthy people there for all the people that are up at Sloan Kettering or whatever? And it used to drive me insane. Like, do you actually have to get the cancer or, or these illnesses yourself to realize it? You know, that's how I felt. So, And I, to hear you say that, that even you, knowing everything you knew, um, had a hard time accepting it. I, I mean, it, it makes sense why... I guess maybe the, if you don't accept it beforehand, it's not going to happen to you. Is that what they think? Like, I don't know. It has to be. I think you nailed it right there. Is I, I think we have to. Not we have to. I feel like a lot of us do live in denial. Like we know it's there, but we want to pretend it's not there. Like eh, it's not going to get me. I'm. It may get other people, but it's not. I'm good. I'm. I'm safe and. You know, it's, you have to be a little crazy to do the job that we do. And we have to, you have to feel a little invincible to, to be put in these situations, but that invincibility can hamper us as well. And it, and it really comes to light in these type of situations. You and, know, and it's ironic, you are human. Right. But I think the ironic thing is, is that feeling of invincibility stems from the gear itself. Like I think, you know, you go into a, a thousand degree room in bunker gear and you don't feel it and you feel like I could put it out and it's not going to hurt. Like it, it's it's crazy to me that that the thing that makes you feel invincible is the thing that is actually. Making us weak, right? It's true. Absolutely. So, while we're on the gear, I, I introduced uh, my listeners to Diane last week, um, you know, that crazy lady from Massachusetts. That, that crazy lady who talks funny. Um, <laughs> sorry, Diane. Um, but so how did you beat Diane? And, and uh, you know, I, I, I'm always into like, how did, how did all this start in the first place? I think my situation and my introduction to her is similar <laughs> to hundreds, if not thousands of <laughs> firefighters out there. Um, I got an email from her. email email or like a facebook message is one of those basically she was talking about 
it was your turnout gear in PFOA and and talking about how there's there's carcinogens within your fire gear. And um, you know, I obviously I'm I'm looking at this and I'm like, what the hell? It really is this a thing? And you have to understand where I'm located. I and and being in Dayton, Ohio, I mean, that is a big part of the fire gear industry. I've got, I've got two large manufacturers right here being Lion and Honeywell. And so I've got, you know, friends at both places. And I just, I remember reaching out and just saying, is there something to this? What, what is this lady talking about? And, you know, these are people that, you know, that I trusted with this stuff. And, and they, they really were saying the same thing as, oh, that's an old gear, you know, excuse me, 20, you know, like they call it legacy gear 2015 and before, and it's just trace amounts and we don't use that chemical anymore. And, you know, I was like, okay. But then I also thought to myself, I've been wearing gear since 1998. Right. So, and this is, you know, 2015, 2016, when this is coming to life for me, somewhere around there, I've been doing this stuff for, you know, almost 20 years. I know I've been wearing gear that had stuff in it. And, uh, they kind of really blew it off. And, you know, my stance was back then, you know, I really, I trusted NFPA and I trusted the IFF. And as long as they weren't saying anything about it or talking about it, I didn't really think that it was a real thing. That was a pretty big mistake. Yeah. And, and on a side note, have you have you spoken to any of those friends at those companies since your diagnosis? Like, what was their response to that? Did they? I think back then, and 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 you have to realize, I wasn't talking to really the higher ups, the owners, the managers. I mean, these are these are more salesmen. Um, okay. This is what they were being told. Right. They weren't, um, I think, being you know manipulating or being you know misleading. Uh, they were, this is what they were told and, and that's what they were sharing. And I don't think they knew any better to ask any more questions. Uh, just like I really didn't know any better to ask any more questions or do a deeper dive. It would take persistence on really Diane more than anybody to where this really became a thing and questions started being asked. And you kind of realized then, um, how this was kind of uh, really the the industry playbook, the same playbook that was used with big tobacco, the same playbook that was used with flame retardants. Just, I mean, it's the chemical, you know, uh, way they they mislead you, and that was now being done to us because you wouldn't think, you you can't comprehend. It's it's incomprehensible for to think that somebody would purposely poison us but that's really what they've done the stuff that's supposed to protect us is actually harming us like and and for people to know that and still sleep at at night and and not have a conscience or morals or ethics or any of that stuff and just go on like it's no big deal that's insane who would do that well there are people that do that there are people that feel that way and it's, it's, it's crazy. And it, and I was thinking, Rob, when, when we, when you asked me 
to do this show, I, I was thinking that whereas I haven't sat down in, con- in, in Congress and I haven't really approached these these representatives, um, I, I've still been dealing with the headaches and the lies and the misleading and, and people just choosing money over our health. I imagine the frustration that I have and my fellow Avengers are the same thing that you had, you know, very, very similar, just of how does this happen? How can you do this to us? Yeah, I, I, well, I had the extra level of frustration because the the gear companies aren't admitting it right now. We, whereas in our case, the EPA, everybody admitted that they lied to us. Everyone admitted that that stuff is bad and it's going to kill you, you know? So it was even more frustrating because it's like, well, then what are we even talking about? Because you're you're acknowledging it. You're admitting that it happened. You're admitting that you're responsible for the lie, right? The government. But yet you're saying you're not going to help us, you know, so that I mean, as far as I know, none of these gear companies have have really admitted that any of this is their fault. Right. Well, they're all, they're they're being sued as well right now. And I'm not sure if they don't want to admit it because they're being sued, you know, and, well, and all of a sudden that makes it liable. I, I, I don't know if that's part of their game plan. I, I don't know what or why they're doing it, but it just it doesn't seem. It's not ethical at all. So now, I, I, why are they putting these chemicals in in the first place? Is it just because they have no other way of getting rid of them? Where 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 does the profit in putting it in there come from? I think you need to go back a little bit, a couple of decades really too, uh, and, I'll, and I'll try to still make this short and sweet. But you, you go back yeah. to the University of Kentucky, so the Wildcats. And uh, they do a lot of textile stuff. Um, And they paid uh, a student. uh, When I say they, I mean, Lyon paid University of Kentucky to to do this study, this thesis report. And I believe her name was Chastity Newsom that did the first one back in 2000, 2002. I can't quite remember. But um, they did the study because there was a, a... a company named Breathe Text that was making the moisture barriers. And these moisture barriers, they ended up being defective. They were disintegrating. They weren't even being used. Like they would be in a bag on a shelf um, and it was turning into blue dust. So they knew that there was a problem with the moisture barriers. They need, they knew they needed to figure out something, but they kind of went to the real extreme on this. So with this, this test, they did this UV light test they basically made sure that the moisture barrier could withhold 40 hours of just being in the sunlight. So again, just think about this, the moisture barrier, the stuff that's inside our gear that never sees light is being tested. So it really right. makes there, there's fabric on both in. sides. So people know there's, there's two different liners yes. and the, the, the moisture barrier is in between. So we're going to do this, this light test. <laughs> Cause it makes perfect sense. But um, the only thing that will pass that is this Teflon, the, these, this PFAS is the only thing that we have right now that can withstand that test. So the test really has no merit because first of all, it really wasn't needed. It was the fact that there was this manufactured defect with the brief text and they went just over and above and just 
said, we'll, we'll do this. Um, so, and with that, then not only did you end up having this, this chemical, this, this PFOS, this water repellent that's in the moisture barrier, but you know, the gear manufacturers were putting it in the outer shell, you know, so oils and water wouldn't get into our gear. And then there's even one company in particular, the same one that paid for this test, by the way, with, with Kentucky, um, they were putting in their thermal liner. So, which is we're that's what we're right against our skin. Right. It's what we're absorbing into our skin. We, and we know that now this stuff, we absorb it into our skin. So there's, there's money involved, you know, manufacturers paid all this money to, to get it tested, to get it through. And um, they don't want to come up with something else because they have to pay for the research and development of that as well. I had to, to find this test initially because it was like, I don't know. It was like an adventure. I had to physically drive down to the university to go to the library to find the book. Really? Yes. <laughs> I, I just happened to be the closest of, of us all. So, and then magically, this is the, first of all, they couldn't find it. They couldn't find it. You know, nobody knew, nobody could even access it. It wasn't like it was online or anything. And uh, the day after I, I went down and got this, magically, it digitally appeared. And it was a different version of what I had. So they're saying there was only one. It's in the, it's in the, the library and bullshit. There was Did you make copies one. of it? I, I scanned it. Did you? <laughs> yes, I got some poor UK student <laughs> to, to key in a computer that allowed me to scan it and send it all. Um, okay. I, it, was, uh, it was a cool ride home because I, I thought I accomplished something. I thought I had, you know, found this holy grail. Right. And then the next day it just shows up in my email and it, it even had the, cause there was a second edition, which another student added stuff onto it. And I was just like, uh, went there for, well, well, it sounds like maybe you, you called their bluff. So they knew you had it anyway. So it was uh it was an interesting dynamic. That's did sure. you ever, did you ever try to reach out to, to the woman who wrote the, Dr. Easter uh, was the uh, professor over all this stuff. And she was on NFPA call early on um, in the spring or summertime. I can't remember which time it was. Um, And and she talked about it. Uh, The student, I think we, there were people that tried to reach out to her and she didn't reach back at all. She's still, Mm -hmm. as far as I could tell, just by doing my online detection stuff, still doing, um, textile stuff but just i don't think wanted anything to do with it right yeah so you know last week we gave everyone the the short version of what's happening um so but we didn't really get into where we're at right now you know we i talked a little bit about the the uh nfpa knocking the removing the 40-hour test and all that but where, where do we stand now? What's the next step? What? So we did this, this, uh, when I say we, the IFF submitted a TIA, which was essentially trying to amend the current standard in which we just, all we did was we, we removed that UV light test. Okay. And uh, just by doing that, it gave everybody the freedom to choose and they'd have the option of getting, purchasing PPE 
that didn't have these PFOS fluorine chemicals in it. That was the whole idea. And that TIA ended up being voted down by the NFPA, by the, by the committee for NFPA, but then also the standard council, which basically is, is their guys, is their dad. And they said no to on that. And they, what they cited was that um, there's already a task group that has been created to look at these, which is factual. And, and I think they even said that a task group full of experts that are looking into this. I happen to be on that task group. Do you want to know how I got on that task group? Let's hear it. Are you interested? I raised my hand. And that made me an expert, apparently, just by saying, I'll do it. <laughs> You're an expert, Jim Bernica. Thank you. Uh, that's how it was. It was we were in a meeting. The chairperson decided he was going to do this task group and ask for volunteers. And all you had to do is raise your hand. And there you go. So it is this task group is full of industry full of researchers and there are not a lot of firefighters it kind of goes to what you were saying earlier you've got this big problem you got all these people that are sick but there's a handful of firefighters that are on, that are on it and that's it you know they were just completely underrepresented but um they are looking at removing that current uv light test and doing a different type of light test that is kind of makes sense actually doing it for the whole garment. So all three layers together and just seeing if it could really um, kind of like a, they called it like a, a torture test basically to make sure that it could get through dealing with UV light. So they're looking at changing things. The problem with a lot of this stuff is, you know, how long is this actually going to take to get voted on to, to pass, to, actually you know come out in the next edition which i don't think the 1970 which is going to be what this is the standard it's under it's going to come out till 2023 i think so there's still a long time and so even if we took this test out and we did have the opportunity to have fluorine free gear this stuff is still going to be around for 10 more years after that our firefighters are still going to be wearing it i will not finish my career Without, you know, I'll still be in gear that has these chemicals in it. Right. You know? And and uh, uh, people might not have seen it, but John Oliver just did an, uh, an episode of his show on PFAS. And, you know, we know that it's not just in firefighters gear, it's in everything. So you're getting levels of PFAS, you know, from everything from a food wrapper, right, to the clothes you wear, our drinking water. Uh, it's unavoidable. So even if you weren't wearing your gear, you're still going to be getting traces, trace amounts of this stuff in you anyway. So I feel like by putting the gear on, you're multiplying all that crap, you know, by a thousand or whatever, right? Yeah. And bioaccumulates, we inhale it, we absorb it. I mean, every time we put this stuff on and, you know, I can't say Rob that my cancer came from this. I don't know. I've been exposed to so much stuff throughout the years. I really don't, I have no idea, but you know, where my philosophy is anything that we can do to reduce our exposures, that's going to limit, you know, the chances of us getting diagnosed with cancer. That's what we need to do. And this is just one of those facets, you know, but it's a, it's a big facet. I mean, 
depending on where you're at, I mean, you may put your gear on several times a day, several times a shift. I know you did. I know I do. Uh, I mean, we put it on, you know, we went on 5,000 runs a year. So whatever that works out to a day, you know, that's a lot. And, and you're not just wearing it to go on runs. I mean, we had to check hydrants. We had to go on building inspection, shop for meals, um, anything else that might come up. You know, there's this community outreach, all the stuff that comes up besides just going to emergencies. And then you factor in, you know, the buffs, as we call them, who work in all these busy places that, you know, places like Brooklyn, where response time is 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 a source of company pride, um, which it should be. You know, obviously, we want a good response time, but these guys are wearing their gear all day long. Uh, they're at least their pants. You know, yeah. I, I know guys who sleep in their pants. Um, sorry, wait. We don't sleep. We wait. Uh, they wait in their gear, you know, and, and it's like a source of pride how quickly you can get on the rig. And, and part of that is just having your stuff on already because it takes an extra 20 seconds to pull your boots up, you know, yeah. um, which, which I think, you know, we, we make, we make a lot out of scene size up, right. Taking your time, not just getting off the rig and running into a fire. You got to look, look at the front of the building, see if there's any hazards, see if there are any people hanging out, you know, it's, it's, it's hurry, but but you got to do it strategically, and you got to get in there, and t- and you actually have to take your time to save time later. You know what I'm talking about, sure. But I feel like shouldn't shouldn't that be part of your size up? Shouldn't it be like, well, if I'm just sitting in the firehouse, is it really necessary for me to have my bunker pants on when I know that there's a very good chance that it's it's going to increase my chances of getting cancer? I'm just not sure everybody is is even aware that it's a problem. I, I mean, I mean, you and I know it, a handful of people certainly know it, but like the vast majority of firefighters, I think are probably clueless that this is their gear is actually a threat. I just don't think that they know it yet. I don't think it just hasn't been that mainstream yet. It hasn't been on 60 minutes. It hasn't, you know, there's not recalls. There's, I mean, there's just, there's nothing to really, truly alert them besides you and me talking about it. Besides well, Diane th- emailing people. Well, I think there's a reason for that. You know, there's a reason that it's not on 60 minutes. There's a reason that it's not, it's not, you know, the it's, it's on old podcasts, right? I'm not the only podcast talking about it. You talk about it on yours. Um, it's, it's all on these lower level, uh, media outlets but it's not you're right it's not mainstream because i mean even you mentioned the john oliver piece yeah it's a great piece i mean the the man is able to talk about it like serious facts lay it all out there but also do it in a pretty funny way right like he it was, it was nicely done 20 minutes you should go out your way to, to see it but he didn't mention us at all yeah not, not yet a, not a word Nothing yeah. about phone, nothing about gear. And so that tells you really just truly how mainstream we are not. <laughs> right. Yeah, I well, do want to say real quick, uh, I want to go back to the, the NFPA stuff, which, by the way, is so much fun and it's so exciting. But there is, you know, the task group is working on this stuff, but there is the opportunity for individuals like you and anybody else any that's listening to have a say and how this, this is going to work out. So they're combining all these different standards. So 
the UV light test, this whole PFOS stuff lived in what's called NFPA 1971. That is being converged with several other standards into NFPA 1970. And because it's a new standard, it has this thing called public input. And that's where you can just write an email, write a nice little letter to them, and you can really say, this is what you want to see in it. And from since it's a new standard, you actually have a say, and they have to, they don't just have to look at it and go, yeah, whatever. They have to acknowledge it. They have to answer you back. And if you don't like that answer, you can say, ah, that's bullshit, and go back and keep being in the process. So being part of this public input and just writing something as simple as get these chemicals out of our gear or our gear should be PFOS free. You know, um, we need to find, you need to find an alternative, whatever it may be writing that down. They have to address it and you get to start stay as part of the process. So it's kind of a unique situation regarding this NFPA stuff. So um, even though it may take more time, the result may end up being better because of that. Sure. And, and people should be aware that before we had this gear, fire still went out, lives were still saved. You know, when, when, when our predecessors were wearing rubber boots and jeans, they still did the job, right? Uh, they might not have gotten as deep into the seat of the fire, but realistically, how many people are saved by getting into a thousand degree room? You know, uh, not many, you know, they're saved in usually in the. <laughs> hey, I open up the door. They're right there. Right. Yeah. So, I, you know, um, I mean, I, obviously I, I, you know, I come from a, a department that does an interior attack uh, and I believe in that. However, I don't think it's I don't think the gear is is always necessary i think we could still do the job without i mean we could probably find gear that that is just as protective without this crap in it but we already did it is what i'm saying you know what i have one hanging right behind me i see that yeah well i've i've heard everything at this point regarding this stuff you know everybody's worried about all the breathability if we get away from this stuff it's going to be our gears are going to be too hot and um you know what about steam burns what about you know one guy talks about how he sweats in his boots. I mean, it's just, yeah. you know, the uh, unattended consequences is everybody's favorite word. And it's like, we already have unattended consequences. <laughs> we, we did that 20 years ago to right. I'm quoting Jeff Stahl when he, when he says that, but when we put that in, you know, we, it's a carcinogen. We already have unattended consequences right now in the shit we're wearing. Okay. But you, they just look the other way and they just hope that it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, you don't get cancer. But, you know, most of the people on this committee have never worn any gear. They don't have to wear this stuff. They sit in their office. Well, isn't that usually the case? The people without the proverbial skin uh, in the game. I, I, know, I know I'm preaching to the choir when I'm talking <laughs> to you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, this is old hat for you. I'm, this is still kind of. I'm not used to being worked up and, and taken on the world like you did. Right. You know, we had people sitting in offices in Washington telling us that the air at ground zero was, was safe to breathe. You know, what, what does that tell you? Um, yeah, I know it's frustrating, but uh, I feel like we're, we're, we're 
picking up a little steam here, right? It seems like other people outside of, of your little circle are starting to talk about this. Um, sure. But I think that's the most, right now, I think that's the most important thing is, sure, we got to get the stuff out of the gear, but we got to get the, the, the members to stop wearing it all the time. I think that is priority number one, because that's the only thing that we actually have control over. Rob, they're still doing the stair climbs, wearing the stuff. They're still I know. doing their 5Ks with it. They're still, you know, putting their babies on it. I, um, I just saw I mean, one yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I'm guilty of it. I mean, I did that too, my oldest. Um, and every time I see that picture, and I, I use that picture as an example, but I mean, I cringe every damn time I, I, I show that. Um, hindsight, you know, I mean, mistakes were made for sure, but uh, we just need to get to the point where like the attitude has to be this right now. We're stuck in this stuff. It's not going anywhere for at least a little bit. So we just have to be absolutely responsible. Only use it when you have to, you know, only use it when you're actually fighting fire. Don't, you know, don't go to the grocery store. Don't do these exercising and stair climbs. Uh, there's even gear out there that, uh, that you can use for extrication, for rescue stuff. It's, it's not, you know, our full turnout gear, but they, they make those now that are PFOS free. So there, there's at least that opportunity out there, but just be mindful of it. It's, it's an exposure, but you got to limit your exposure and just really, really only use it when you have to. I, I think that that type of culture change is never going to come from, from the, the, the suits, certainly not going to come from the white helmets. It's got to come from the, from the senior members of the firehouse, right? I, I feel like, because that's where all the, the true change starts. You could, you could write as many rules and regulations as you want, but until you convince yeah. the senior men to start teaching in it, you know, during drill or at roll call, I don't think it's going to, it's really, you know, that's where we need to, to get our foot in the door is to get the senior members to start telling the younger members to stop. Um, that it's not cool to wear your bunker pants uh, around the firehouse, that it's not cool to go run. I know people who ran the New York City Marathon in bunker gear. That's, you know, uh, that's insane now that I look back on it. Um, so that's where it starts. It starts with us. I mean, it's always, it, you know, it's always been cool to have uh, the salty helmet and the, the, the smoke covered hood, right? No one ever washed their hood. Uh, that was, it was cool to, you didn't want to wear a clean hood. I mean, that's, that, that's the kind of thinking that needs to go away. Uh, I don't know how we do it, but. I have the, I have the luxury of teaching my new recruits and, and I actually get to talk to them about several things. Now I get to talk to them about behavioral health. I get to talk to them about this. We knew this year. I'm going to actually talk about financial stuff, you know, make sure they're on the right track and they're thinking ahead of time what to do, because that's going to help out later on. Sure. And then, and then of course we're going to talk about cancer. And I always talk about like, look, you got to understand how significant of a threat this is. And you also need to understand that your first day on the street, you're, you're likely where, where we are. There's a good chance you get a fire. I mean, we fight a lot of fire here in Dayton. And I said, you're going to be given the opportunity right then and there. Perhaps day one, if not day two or three, it's coming. You know, especially where these kids are going. And, and you're going to fight the fire and everybody's going to be wearing their mask. Everything's going to be great. But then it's time for overhaul. And you're expected to be that first one in and last one out. And you're going to see a 
the majority of people around you taking their mask off? Are you going to be that guy? I just told you what you're up against. I told you the numbers, the odds, all that kind of stuff. You're going to be left with a choice right then and there. Do I keep my mask on? Do I take it off? And unfortunately, most of them take it off. They give in that peer pressure that day one. I warn them about it. I tell them it's coming. Still doesn't matter. I don't know what the winning formula is. I don't know. You can't get the rescue makeup with your mask on. That's the that's the problem. <laughs> I think I this it has to be peer pressure. They they see these old guys, they see what they're doing, and they just want to follow it. And unfortunately, yeah. these old these old guys just I don't know if they feel like the damage is already done. So what's the point? I don't I don't know. There was a point in my career in which I realized that this is dumb. The only life safety that's involved is us, you know, doing overhaul. Like, what am I risking and why am I risking it? And I was wearing it before anybody. And you can imagine the amount of shit that I got for doing that. I mean, because I was, I was it. What is he doing? You know, but then I've also had a lot of people come up to me later on much later on and say, sure, listen to you. You're right. And that's not what I want to hear. Yeah. You know, I don't want that regret stuff that they had. You know, I just hope they take me at my word. And for this class coming up and I'm going to teach them, man, it's going to be different because I've always had to bring other people in to tell their story, to make it personal. And now I'm, I have my own story and it's a club I didn't want to be in, but I can at least speak to myself and my experiences now and uh, try my damnedest to, to, to just relay how much they don't want this, that this sucks. Well, I, I think that is, is the only way things will change is if people like you who, who've had cancer start speaking out about it, you know, uh, because I don't, I know a ton of, of firefighters who've had cancer, but none of them like to talk about it. I mean, I, I think certain, to a certain extent, it's because we're prone, like that's, that's part of the job, right? You don't complain about anything. You don't talk about your issues at all. Like that's, we, we don't do that. That's not, that's not in our nature. Like, so you, you know, you suck it up, so to speak, right? You gotta, sometimes you gotta, even the emotional stuff, you kick it to the side and you do your job. And I feel like that extends post your post career. When you start dealing with the cancers and all the other crap, which I'm sorry, if, if you're a firefighter during your listening, you're going to deal with it when you're, whether you're, whether you're retired or not, eventually this stuff is going to catch up to you, you know, um, to people like Jim and I, it happened earlier on, but until those guys start showing up at fire academies or, at the kitchen table or the counseling units or wherever and, and telling their stories, I don't think it's really going to connect. You know, it's got to be personal. Like you said, there, I've really, and I think this has been a process. I think I was doing this even before I was diagnosed. I was really starting to let my guard down and just be vulnerable and just be real and get past the machismo and all the bullshit and just be genuine. And, um, you know, I, I know my speech. I mean, I'll talk about how, and, and a lot of these kids, they don't have kids yet. They're, they're still kids, right. you know, but like, 
And you, you know, there's like, there's how the hell do you tell a seven-year-old? How do you explain this to them? I had to do that. It sucked. I didn't even tell my four-year-old. I knew he wouldn't understand, but my seven-year-old was got it. He's smart enough, but I mean, that's, that's, that's what they don't teach you. There's no training for that. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, I, you know, I know I'm going to relay this. I know I want to be emotional. And, um, and if I, if one of those kids in that class takes it to heart, I win. You know, it's all worth it. Just one of them. I right. hope it's more. Well, and the hope would be that that one kid passes it on to somebody else. And I think that's how it starts. You got to. You, you know, they the, the younger generation has to be willing to do what you're saying. They has to be willing to shed the, you know, the norms of the fire service. Because um, that's the only way true change is going to happen. It's not going to come from the old guys who are retiring anyway. It's got to start from the bottom, you know. Um, but like you said, it's much easier to have that conversation than it is to have with your own kids. Uh, so. You know, it's hard to explain that to a 22-year-old, right? But the hardest day of my life was explaining to my kids. 22-year-old, yeah, that doesn't doesn't have kids. Like, kids yeah. are the last thing he's thinking about. I mean, because I remember being in that room and, and you know, started when I was 21 there in that room. And, yeah, family, that was a, the furthest thing from my mind right then. So it's hard to picture that. And, and you really, like, I try my best to paint the big picture, to paint the future. And it's a future that you, you're not even aware of what it's going to be like, but you just have to assume that, you know, you're going to have a family, you're going to have kids and you want to be around. What's the point of doing this 20, 25, 30 years, whatever it may be. So you can retire and then die. There's no point in that to me. Right. And what, to go back to what you were saying before about, preaching to them about the financials of, you know, cause I, I believe your retirement starts on day one. You have to start planning. So if you're going to plan for your financial future, why don't you plan on being here <laughs> to actually enjoy your pension or whatever it is you were planning for? You These know? kids now have to have to in Ohio, they have to work till they're 52. They have to do 25 years right. and get to the age of 52 before they can start drawing their pension. I just have to wait till I'm 48. I got grandfathered in, but I mean, that's a long time. And then after that, they have, they, they lure you with this drop program. You can work eight more years. I'm out. No, thank you. Those are going to be the, those are going to be the eight years, the eight best years of my life, not doing a drop program and being around and living my life. Where I could still move around and not hurt that bad, hurt a little bit, but not hurt right. that bad. Right. You know, there's nothing. No, but and if you start, if you start early on, you know, whether you're deferred comp, you're, you're Roth, you know, um, staying out of debt, you know, credit card debt, uh, just being responsible and living within your means, it makes it to where you, you know, that drop, if you want to do that, that's an option. That's cool. But you don't want to depend on, it. I see so many, guys and gals that depend on that they depend on that money 
And it's just not worth it. If you're able to, if you're smart from the beginning, you don't have to worry about it and you can just leave and be healthy and enjoy your retirement. Have some good years with your family. That's at least where I am. I can't speak for everybody else, but that's, that's, (laughs) that's been my mindset for a while. And this, this cancer diagnosis that I got earlier this year just reiterated and said, you are, you are absolutely a thousand percent correct with your plan. Keep (laughs) stick to it. Right. And uh, something you were telling me about before we went on, um, it sounds like your department is starting to come around uh, with the importance of, of wellness. Right. So tell everybody what, what they've created and what, I believe other departments around the country need to start thinking about. Well, this is, I, I don't have a whole ton of information, but I, I did get asked to breaking news. I don't have music, break, but it's breaking break, news, breaking news. I, I got asked to uh, switch to 40 hours and, and basically be the wellness guy and just take, you know, it's, it's not a position. It's not written up. There's, you know, it's basically, I get a kind of write up my, my scope of this position, but the, I, I, I kind of already know this in my head. It's, it's something I, I, I kind of pitched before because I think the, the best use of Jim Bernica for the Dayton Fire Department is to do stuff like wellness stuff, to do cancer stuff, to do behavioral health stuff, to, uh, to really just make sure that our quality of life is good while we're on the job, but it's still there when we leave the job as well. Um, and, and I kind of got the, the, I got the phone call saying, Hey, you're, you're up, you know, <laughs> write out what you want to do, but we're going to give you this position because we think that you can do a great job and really take care of our members. And I am, uh, I'm still just taken aback by this, by this whole thing, by this opportunity. And, and they know I want to take it serious and it's going to pay off. Um, and it's a ton of responsibility, but I mean, I'm still, my head is still racing behind the whole thing. Um, because it's, it just shows that we have come a long way. This is, this is never anything that we would, you know, offer up or, or, you know, it wasn't a thing a couple of years ago, even, I mean, the whole, like you yeah. said, suck it up buttercup and, and, uh, just deal with it. And, you know, and because of that, that attitude, and it, it is, it's a, it was the fire service. It wasn't so special to us in Dayton. It was everywhere, but and we had suicides. We've had lots of cancer deaths. I mean, and you just, you see this and, and you can't help but take it personal. I mean, it's been, especially, and I, and I know I'm, God, I'm sorry, Rob, I'm preaching the choir, but we've had so many deaths, you know, just a recent, and they're just beloved guys, just legends you know, for our department and it just takes its toll. And and I'm glad that, you know, the department and the union wants to do something about it, you know, and, and I'm, I'm thankful that I got the call and I, I think other people, when they find out, I, I think they'll be like, hell yeah, this is where he belongs. You you can get, I mean, a lot of people can fill my boots and they'll tell you that on the fire ground and, and, and doing the job itself. But this is something I just have a passion about and, and it'll be better for our firefighters. It'll be better for our citizens because our firefighters will be better and it'll be better for our firefighters families too. 
So yeah. I'm I'm just over the moon with this whole this whole opportunity. And I get to tell you really before I even get to tell my <laughs> wife. I can I can hear her upstairs, but like <laughs> sorry. No, it's okay. She knows it's coming. I at least text her, but uh, we haven't had the conversation. So um, right. I don't know. And and I hope other places follow suit. I mean, we're not a we're not a huge department, but we're not a small department. And I think right. we we can definitely you know, make this a priority. And it's gonna be it's gonna be better. But there's there's you know there's people that I'm gonna bug. I'm gonna bug the. Brandon Dryman's of Indianapolis or the Dave Burns Wags of Columbus that, that have had similar type of programs and, and really, you know, try to help hone what I want to, you know, accomplish as well. Now it, it sounds like your department's on board with, with what you do, how, how have they reacted with your side work, so to speak with the gear and all that? Um, are they supportive or, you know staying out of it the department has it uh other than look at um uh, being able to get the the pfos zero outer shells you know i know that they've they've been talking to you know manufacturers about that and, and possibly moving to that and even moving up gear to where because we still have a lot of gear that um has the old legacy stuff that that ca the p you know P, pfoa well, that's a positive, right? At least they're trying to get rid of that and actually buying it. new stuff. Yeah. yeah. So um, that's really been a lot of, I kind of been for all this PFOS fight, I've been really just wearing my, my Dane firefighters hat that when I wear that hat, I have, I definitely have more freedom and I'm not representing the fire department. I'm representing right. the union. I'm representing health and safety. I'm representing Jim Burke. So Right. That's that's really given me the the freedom to express myself, and of course having the IFF involved in all this stuff, and and General President Kelly and three hundred twenty four thousand. I mean, yeah, I've had the ability to use this microphone or use my keyboard and just be a pain in the butt, um, which is at times has been fun, you know. So, um, so I don't know. I mean, the department will be. Um, once there are alternatives, I'm sure they'll go for it. Cause again, we've, they, they want to do right. They don't want our members to, to have cancer. They don't want to deal with that. Um, right. But that's not the case in most places. They're not even, I mean, look at what Diane's gone through we've, and she's, she's not alone, you know? Right? No, we've, but we've been, I mean, I think again, <laughs> it's taken me 15 years to get this phone call. Right. I mean, and that's really how it is. And when I started doing this stuff in 2006, and started talking about this and bringing it to them. And it's taken them this long to, to truly make it a priority and, and do something about it. And, and I'm okay with it because they at least made the phone call. I didn't think I was ever going to get the phone call, but I got it today. So, you know, I just got to run with it. And, you know, if I can do, here's the other thing. I mean, I'm just going off the cuff now because I haven't had time to truly process this, but I know if I do a good job and people could see the difference, other places may follow suit as well. Right. You know, Jim Bernica role model. <laughs> I mean, the opportunity is there. Sure. That's that's all you can do is try to set, set an example, right? That's, that's what I try to do. Um, 
but at least you're in a position to actually make a change in your department. So I think I think you're right. I do think other departments need to see what no pressure or anything, but to make, see what, if what you're doing is is helpful. And I think once you prove that, you know, it took a long time for the for the FDNY to come around with the mental health. Um, you know, c- certainly after 9-11, it wasn't something that was, uh, you know, in the forefront, even though we were forewarned from, I mean, the standards already been there since Oklahoma City for the fire service, right? But the mental health side with the drug abuse, the alcohol, the divorce rates, all that stuff was already there. And we went through a tragedy, you know, very similar on a much larger scale. And all that stuff we learned from Oklahoma City was thrown out the window. All the warnings from the experts was thrown out the window. We started a, a zero tolerance policy for uh, for drug use. After all the experts said, you're going to see an uptick in drug use after this. So they just started firing. Instead of sitting the, the, the members down and helping them, they just fired them. Um, that wasn't the way to go. Uh, that's been changed slowly. It took 15 years. So... I think if, you, if if there are examples out there, positive ones, I think you will change other departments. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's great that it started from them, not necessarily from you. So that's, that's I can't, a good sign. Yeah, well, yeah. And I, and I can't help but think that, I mean, I look back at some of the members that I worked with and some of the struggles they had and how there wasn't any help no i mean help was called eap you know which wasn't help at all really or very little help i mean it did there were some success stories out of that but all in all they'd left them alone they hit them whatever may be whatever issues they were dealing with and i just look back I, i think about it now with all the resources we have i mean we could have helped there, yeah. there could have been different outcomes if we would have had this stuff now. And I know we, we already talked about hindsight, but I just, you know, I take this stuff personal. Like I want to make sure our members are good and, and we've, we've done all right. And this one, I think would you give me an opportunity to, to do better. Like it's, it's trying to balance a lot of this stuff, the behavioral health stuff, the cancer stuff, you know, the, the union stuff, um, with still working on shift and doing the, you know, oh, hello, I got family too. It's been difficult. So just, I think the, the idea of being able to just do this as my job, <laughs> I mean, it's pretty cool. I mean, yeah. it, I think it'll truly help with my, my balance, you know, and uh, I get to be dad and husband and, and uh, still do what's important to me. Yeah, and and sleep on a normal schedule. There's something to be said about that too. Sleep in my own bed. Yeah, yeah. Um, Not have to move my CPAP every every (laughs) shift. Well, which is a whole other firefighter issue that we won't talk about. Uh, (laughs) It's another two sleep disorders. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) All right. Well, um, I'm very happy for you. I'm I'm glad you got this new position. Um, As I said. I think it's important that all departments have something similar. Um, I hope that we make more strides with the gear situation. Um, as I told Diane, I'm here to help in any way I can. Uh, you know how to reach me. 
Um, but we'll keep beating the drum, you know, it's a, it's a drum beat, right? Um, the, you know, it's got to start somewhere and you got, and you can't get discouraged and you can't quit. So anybody out there who can help, as I said last week, start following Jim, follow Diane. Uh, Jim has a podcast, the 25 live podcast. You can listen in there, but, uh, start spreading the word. Tell every firefighter, you know, stop wearing your gear, right? Um, what closing messages do you have for everybody? Let me hear it. I would just say that we we've got momentum now regarding yeah. this gear stuff. And, uh, I mean, I don't see that changing. It's not going to go away. There's, uh, is not, I said this earlier, but I'll say this regarding this whole PFOS stuff in our gear. It's not a matter of, of if it's just going to be a matter of when, when we have something that doesn't have this stuff in our gear anymore. Right. So I, that that's, it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when, so hopefully sooner than later, but it has been, uh, you know, I told Diane back in January, February, when we had the IFF convention and we, we passed, uh, these resolutions that like, uh, Sean Mitchell, Jason Burns, Ron Glass, all these, all these guys did regarding PFAS. I, you know, she told me, she's like, I couldn't, I couldn't have done all this stuff by myself. And, and I really, <laughs> you'll appreciate this. I, I told her then I said, we're like the Avengers. I said, we had one, you know, pretty common enemy and it took a lot of us all coming together and we all had our own specialties, but we were able to, you know, do this fight. And that's what we're doing right now is we're not quite an Avengers end game, but we're going to get there. So, you you know, that New York city, Marvel nerd stuff. (laughs) No, I I have an eight year old son, so I don't, I'm well versed in the Marvel universe. Uh, so yeah, but that, that's true. It, 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 it definitely takes more than one person. Um, it definitely takes a team. She did amazing. She She, did. She made us all aware of this problem. I mean, she was the whistleblower and against, I mean, and just got so much shit along the way for it still gets shit about it. Um, but she was relentless and that, that really, I mean, that, finally got me to go okay shit there is something here and it got everybody else to, to realize hey this this lady isn't all that crazy she's still crazy but not completely crazy she, i say that uh, with love no she's good crazy like like, like all of us right <laughs> yeah so i mean it's it's getting more and more and more involved and and i mean it's you know i i'm on the right side and i know we're going to win yeah and you know that feeling mm-hmm I know it's, it's, it's before I let you go. I just think that is the distinct difference between what I was fighting for. And this is we had the entire country experienced nine 11. Everyone saw it. Everyone was, was affected by it in some way, but this doesn't affect most people. You know, they don't, it's not something you could see. It's not something that everyone watched on TV. I mean, you see firefighters wearing gear, but you're not see you're not seeing, uh, firefighters getting diagnosed in their doctor's offices you're not seeing the uh all the members in hospice care and you know stuff that we see all too often so i think that's the difference is is it's it's not something on the forefront and i wish i knew how to get it there on the forefront of everybody's minds because it's not something that they experienced themselves like we said before so i I wish that's that's been part of the battle you know i wish i knew how to make this more mainstream well, 
we'll, we'll keep beating that drum, right? We'll, yeah. We'll try. And no, we're uh, trying. Maybe we'll get John Oliver to to include this battle in his next episode on PFAS or people like him, you know, because he learned from the best. So, yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. So we'll work on him, too. So, uh, Mr. Oliver, if you're listening, uh, you know, reach out. We're all on Twitter. Call me. Call me. Uh, All right. So I'm going to let Jim go, but uh, this is not the last you're going to hear about PFAS and firefighter cancer on this show. Um, Obviously, I'd like to bring some more upbeat stories to the people. So um, we will talk about other issues. Um, We will talk about the fun side of the fire department. But uh, like I said last week, this is the most pressing issue that we're facing right now. So I hope I'm not a sad story. I hope I'm not a sad story. Not that it's a sad story, but when you're telling people about everyone getting cancer and and why to me the saddest part of the story is that there are people purposely doing this to the people i look at as the helpers and i take that personally um so that's the sad part of the story i agree but i think it also shows how resilient we all are and how we just fight but i also think that's how they get away with it because they know that we're going to keep that's just we're going to they they exploit that trait they exploited it you know on 9-11 they've they exploited it for the 20 years that they that they they know that that people who want to do good and help other people will do it regardless so i think they use that against us that's i that that's how i always felt and that's how i felt leaving every fucking meeting i had in washington was that these people you know you went so long about staying the F word and then you drop it at the very Well, end. anytime I think about going to Washington, it makes me want to say fuck. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we give a parental advisory for this show, don't worry. Um, <laughs> if if Frankie starts cursing, then we have a problem. <laughs> Fair enough. Anyway, you were trying to you were trying to get off the show and I kept it going on. I'm sorry. I know, that's right. I know it's a, it, this is another long episode, but it's an important one. But uh, but thanks for coming on, Jim. And uh, we'll have a recipe from Jim coming up shortly. So, yeah, enjoy. Hey guys, it's Frankie, and welcome to Frankie's Firehouse Feast. Today's recipe is called Jim Berneka's Stuffed Pepper Recipe. The ingredients include two pounds of ground meat, two pounds of ground sausage, eight eggs, two cups of Italian breadcrumbs, one cup of grated Parmesan, four cloves of fresh garlic, salt, pepper, Italian seasonings, four cans tomato sauce, one cup of cooked white rice, eight large green peppers, and shredded cheese. Here are the directions. First, slice the peppers vertically. Cook the rice, hamburger, and sausage. Mix all the ingredients with two cans of tomato sauce. Place it inside the green peppers. Top with two remaining tomato sauces and shredded cheese. Cook at 350 degrees for 45 minutes. Manja! Well, thank you, Frankie, my little pepper. And thanks to all of you for listening. As I said in this episode, I really believe there's nothing more valuable in life than your time. So we appreciate you spending your time with us. 
Thanks to Jim for coming on. Good luck in the new role with the new wellness program. Keep setting that example, man. Keep fighting your cancer. You know, we're all there for you. And certainly, uh, we're all there for you in your fight to get firefighter safe gear. And to you young firefighters out there, please heed our advice. Learn from our mistakes. You know, don't wear your gear when you don't have to, when it's not necessary. Wear your mask whenever it is necessary. It might seem like it, it's difficult to have to explain to everybody else at the kitchen table while you're wearing your mask all the time. But trust me, it's much easier than trying to explain to your little kids why you're never going to get better. So please take care of yourselves. This week's Senior Man Tip comes from none other than the great Mr. Rogers. Look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. Subscribe now at staylow.us. Join the squad at patreon.com slash the firefighters podcast. Be sure to leave us five stars. Be sure to follow up on your medicals. Early diagnosis is key, so make sure you're following up with your doctors. And as always, stay low, my friends. Stay low.